Let's pray as uh, we come to open up God's Word together. Father, thank you for your Word. And thank you for the rich variety of ways that you display your grace and mercy towards us. So Lord, we pray that through engaging with your Word now, you might be pleased to stir in our hearts a greater longing for your ways in our lives. Amen. My wife Catherine and I uh, once uh, headed out for a, a new bushwalk track in the Blue Mountains that we'd uh, found in a book and decided to try out. It was, it was going to take about two hours. And uh, it was basically go down one side of the mountain, about halfway down, uh, walk along a ridge, come up the other side, and then walk back along the top. Take about two hours. And uh, the track seemed well-worn and easy to follow and clear, but all was not as it seemed. We're walking along, no worries, and then suddenly, as we've already gone down and now we've been tracking along the ridge, the, the path turns down again along this big, old, fallen tree. And, uh, the, but the path was still very well-worn, and, and so we kept following down, further and further down, but gradually discerning the track became sketchier and sketchier. Uh, it was certainly not like the uh, old Robert Frost poem, Two Roads Diverged in the Woods. I took the one less travelled by. Uh, there was far more than two. We, we took many less travelled by routes. We'd try one and it disappeared and then we'd backtrack, we'd try another and it disappeared, we'd backtrack again and again, another, another. Uh, eventually we just went, let's just bush bash straight back up the mountain and find our way. That didn't go too good either. That was kind of hard work. And uh, the clock was ticking on the sunlight. And so in the end, we, we turned around and we headed back out the way we came. Uh, that's what I call the navigational walk of shame. The problem was plain and simple. Uh, we went down and we went the wrong way. And it brought chaos and hardship to an otherwise very pleasant walk. Have you been there in your life before? You've gone down the wrong way. It might, might have been a, a physical navigational thing around Perth or on holidays somewhere unfamiliar. But at times we go wrong in far more, we, we go the wrong way in far more significant and often damaging ways. Making choices and decisions that bring chaos and hardship into our lives and the lives of those around us. Sometimes the wrong way has devastatingly serious consequences. Jonah is a story about going down the wrong way and the chaos and the hardship that that brings and what God does when we go the wrong way. Uh, today is uh, the first of a four-sermon series through the book of Jonah. Today we're focusing on chapter one, deep, deep, down, down. Uh, for the next three parts, you'll, uh, you'll have to wait for the rest of the story. That'll happen in the July school holidays uh, a little while from now. But on to today. Uh, firstly, I'm going to remind you of the story that we just heard read earlier. And then we're going to explore three questions that the story raises in chapter one. So here, here we are. Here's the story. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go up to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. For I am fully aware of their evil and wickedness. But Jonah 
he ran away, headed the opposite direction for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship headed for Tarshish. And he went, he paid the fare and he went down onto the ship. And he set sail, fleeing from the Lord. The Lord sent a great wind and a great storm arose. And it was as if the ship itself was threatening to break apart. The sailors were so afraid. Each crying out to their own God. They threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah, he'd gone down into the depths of the ship. The captain came and yelled at him, How can you be sleeping? Get up. Call on your God. Maybe, maybe he will notice us and we won't all die. The sailors decided to use an ancient method of seeking guidance from spiritual beings. They threw something similar to dice to figure out whose fault it was. And the dice pointed to Jonah. They start firing questions at him. Tell us, who are you? Who's causing all this trouble? Where do you come from? What work do you do? Who are your people? What's your heritage? Jonah replied, I am a Hebrew. I fear Yahweh, the the God of heaven, the maker of the sea and the land. Now the sailors were even more afraid and fearful. Are you crazy? What do you think you're doing? They knew he was running from his God because he'd already told them earlier. The sea was getting worse and worse. And so they said to Jonah, what should we do to make this storm stop? And Jonah replied, pick me up and throw me into the sea. It's, it's my fault. That will do it. But the sailors tried as hard as they could to row back to land. But it was no use. The storm was just getting worse and worse. And so they cried out to Yahweh. Please, Lord, don't let us die for taking this man's life. You've done what you wanted to do. Don't count us guilty for their sins. And at that, they picked Jonah up and they hurled him into the sea. And the raging storm grew calm. At this, the sailors greatly feared Yahweh. They offered a sacrifice to him, and they offered promises to him. And next, Yahweh sent a a great fish that swallowed Jonah whole. And he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What a story. There is so much in there. But it raises a few questions, doesn't it? Here's my top three questions. One, what are we reading? Two, why does Jonah run? And three, what can we learn from God's storm? So firstly, what are we reading? And by this I mean what what type of text are we reading? There's lots of different options. Uh, Option A, we're reading a, a kid's story, don't you know? It's, it's all about Jonah and the big bad fish, as my three-year-old son Amos would call it. 
Uh, it's it's got to be one of the most popular kids' Bible stories out there. Uh, here's, a, here's a snapshot of uh, just a, a selection of a few that I found. And then, of course, there's the VeggieTales version that, newsbo- uh, that Newsboys really brought an entertaining angle to. Uh, enjoy this for just a moment. Maybe it's a kid's story where you rhyme comet and other things together. Uh, but when we read the text of the Bible, it's, it's a highly sophisticated, complex literature with several messages of, of life and death. It's more than a kid's story. Oh, it's obvious. It's, it's prophecy, option B. It's prophecy. It's, I mean, it's one of the 12 minor prophets in the Bible, and it opens the way that we would expect a prophet to open in the Bible. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Who's Jonah, son of Amittai? Well, he's a prophet. We've met him back in 2 Kings chapter 14, don't you remember? Uh, as a legitimate prophet, he gets one line uh, where he has spoken faithfully on God's behalf. Now, albeit it was uh, preaching blessing to a rather dodgy and terrible king, but nonetheless, it was what God had sent him to say. Uh, this, uh, and that, that phrase, the word of the Lord came to someone, son of someone, that's something that we've come to expect over a hundred times in the Old Testament, just before we're then given a message from God by the prophet. But here in Jonah, we don't get more words from Jonah. Next, we get a story. So it's not your normal prophecy although he is a legitimate prophet. Option C, maybe, maybe we're looking at it all wrong. Maybe we've got to look at it as a, as a parable. I mean, what, what do you do with a, a fish and a guy staying alive in its stomach? I mean, what, what do you do with that? If, if we focus our attention on just two verses in the whole story that includes a big fish, we can become fixated on the, the blunt extremes of fiction or non-fiction. But it includes too much historical detail. A a real prophet accurately described people and time periods, real locations. It it doesn't have the marks of fiction or a parable. It's a a highly crafted, beautiful piece of Hebrew literature, uh, no doubt written after the events upon reflection, but it's still historical narrative nonetheless. And... 
After all, we do believe in an all-powerful creator God who could certainly sustain the life of a man inside a fish for three days. So there's a, a fourth option. Notice in this story, just in chapter 1, but we'll keep noticing it as we come back to the series and the rest of the book as well, the exaggeration and the the -the over-the-topness of the whole thing. Fifteen times in this small book, the Hebrew word for great is used. Everything's great. Great this, great that, great, great. Jonah is often melodramatic and over-the-top. There's a personified ship who threatens to break apart because the storm's too rough. There's animals who basically repent in chapter 3. There's a massive plant that grows and dies in two days in chapter 4. And then there's the humor. There's these stereotypes within thick irony. Jonah's name means dove. And dove is a Hebrew symbol for loveliness or, or gracefulness. And so he's Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, Amittai uh, means faithfulness. So, yet he's anything but lovely or faithful. Jonah is told to go up, and he goes down. There's pagan sailors who are awake to the reality of spiritual power in a storm, and they pray to their gods. There's Jonah, God's prophet, asleep, and even when awoken, doesn't pray. Jonah says he fears the Lord, but it's the pagan sailors who actually fear the Lord. There's sailors with soft consciences, Jonah hard-hearted and mean. We have the irony of a, of a, a true prophet who's rebellious, and, and pagan sailors full of virtue and who repent. So what are we reading? The fourth option, the the modern genre equivalent, uh, would be satire. Satire. This is satire about a legitimate messenger of God who goes the wrong way. A messenger maybe not that unlike you or me. Probably worth defining. Uh, Satire, Google, uh, help me out, here it is. Uh, the, The use of humor irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices. Uh, Modern-day examples include things like The Chaser's War on Everything, if you remember that one. Uh, There's there's Babylon B for Christians on Facebook. Uh, He's uh, he's one of my favorite articles. Calvinist tech guy assures church his mistakes were ordained before the foundation of the world. That's for you guys, tech guys. You're welcome. Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, if you uh, remember the books or the movie. There's Pixar's Wally, And then, of course, there's Sammy J, who uh, really, really hit it with uh, the, ballad of the, uh, the Ballad of the Dunny Roll when COVID was first hitting us. Uh, all, all different versions of satire. One, one, one TED Talk said this about satire. It, it's a commentary on reality. It can help you challenge your bias and both understand why something is a problem and why you should care about it. So we want to let God's satire in Jonah take its effect on us today. Hopefully we can laugh at Jonah and then realize we're laughing a little bit at ourselves and then God can expose our problems and his solution. And Hopefully that runs through all four weeks of the book of Jonah.
That's question one. Question two, why does Jonah run? You'd be forgiven for thinking that it was because he was afraid. I mean, lots of children's Bibles put it plain and simple this way. You run away afraid. And God tells him to preach against Nineveh, a powerful Assyrian city. This is the Assyrians. They are a terrifying people. And they are picking up steam, annihilating everyone in their path at this stage in history. They saw their cruelty as a virtue. They built obelisks and pillars. This is how we know this stuff. They, they built statues to describe all their wonderful ways they've tortured those they captured. Assyrian kings would, would boast about all the limbs that they'd chopped off people while still alive. Heads, feet, noses, ears, and worse. They paraded heads on poles. These were nasty, horrible people. If you saw a, a city that had just been captured by the Assyrians, you'd probably be gagging and hurling at the sight of the gruesome devastation. Jonah's told to go to them. They are a clear and easy example of sin and wickedness at its worst and ugliest. Wrongs seem right, rights seem wrong. So if you're tempted to mock Jonah for his dumb decision to try and outrun the omnipresent maker of the universe, uh, I get it, uh, but, but any ancient reader would probably actually be very understanding. See, either Jonah would go and he would lose his life in a terribly, awfully painful way, or he would go and these violent, disgusting people would repent and be forgiven. And then Jonah would be known as the, as the prophet who brought grace to the worst of Israel's enemies. So he chooses another option, run. And we're not told his motives, classic Hebrew storytelling. We're not told his motives. We're not told he's fearful of the Ninevites or fearful of what might happen to him if he goes. So we need to look closely instead at, at what he does and says. Three actions to notice from Jonah. Uh, firstly, action A, he runs far and he runs down. Have a look at verse 3 with me. It's up on the screen or have a look in your Bibles. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port and after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Do you notice the repetition? In, in one verse we're told three times where he is going. Tarshish, that port, Tarshish. Now, this is, this is the Hebrew equivalent of whoop-whoop. Like, this is the middle of nowhere. Nineveh is, um, is up near modern-day uh, Mosul in Iraq, about 1,000 kilometers away. And he goes to, to head toward Tarshish, which scholars' best guess is probably the southwest of Spain, uh, over 4,000 kilometers away in the opposite direction. You can see on the map here. Uh, Jonah legs it as far as humanly possible. He runs far. And he runs down. Step back with me to verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. 
The English translation go there captures the Hebrew phrase arise and go. Jonah is literally told get up and go. And so what does he do? He goes down. Back to verse 3 again. Jonah ran away from the Lord, headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for the port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard. Now, that's literally down onto the ship. Again, same word. And sail for Tarshish. He's told to get up. He goes down. Verse 5, he's continuing down. The sailors are all up on deck and they're praying to their gods. But Jonah, he's gone below deck. Literally, he's gone down into the ship where he lay down and fell fast asleep. Three times we are shown Jonah's descent away from God's will. Next action to notice. Well, actually to notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't call on God. Uh, the, the captain comes to him, wakes him up, and encourages him to get up. Uh, ironically, the same word that God had used to say, get up, go to Nineveh. Now the pagan captain's telling him, get up, don't stay down. Uh, verse 6, the captain says to him, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us so that we will not perish. Have a think about this for a moment. Jonah now has an amazing opportunity to witness, doesn't he? I mean, this is, this is golden opportunity to witness amongst the pagan sailors. What he could do right now is exactly what the captain suggested. He could pray. Uh, later, at, towards the end of the book in chapter 4, we, we see in 4 verse 2, it's up on the screen, Jonah's fully aware of God's grace. He says, oh, I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah is also aware of his own guilt. We're about to see that in chapter 1. And so he knows God's kindness. He knows his guilt. He's got pagans suggesting, why don't you pray? He could pray and the storm stops. What a testimony to his God, Yahweh, the maker of the heavens and the earth. But Jonah doesn't repent. He doesn't call on his God he misses the opportunity to be part of God's powerful saving work in these sailors' lives. The third thing to notice about Jonah's actions. He attempts even to choose death over repentance. Verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will be calm. I know that this is my fault, that this great storm has come upon you. Now, it kind of seems like uh, things are looking a bit better for God's prophet Jonah, doesn't it? I mean, this seems virtuous at first glance. I, I recognize my guilt. This is my fault, and I'll, I'll sacrifice myself for the sake of you all. Is it? What's the best way to make sure that he never has to go to Tarshish and do, uh, to Nineveh, and do what God has asked him to do. That's to die. He even tries to force his blood onto innocent hands of the sailors. He could have chucked himself in, but he tells them to do it. This isn't self-sacrificing virtue for the sake of others. This is the next and ultimate stage in his solid running away from God plan. What are we to make of all this? God has invited Jonah 
to be part of an amazing story of grace and transformation. But he can't see that. All he sees is an impossibly hard call. And so he runs. Why does he run? At this stage, we know this much. He no longer wants to be God's messenger. We'll know more later in the story, but that's what we know for now. He, he doesn't want to be part of God's plans of grace and transformation in anyone's life. Jonah was going the wrong way, and he was missing out. And he can't see the transformation that is just about to happen in these sailors, let alone recognize that what is coming is a movement of God's grace amongst Nineveh that is greater on a greater scale than anything you could possibly imagine. I mean, the repentance and revival of an entire despotic city, an evil, violent Assyrian one, that turned to God. This is amazing stuff that God wants him to be a part of. But Jonah no longer wants to be God's messenger. He misses out. About almost a decade ago now, an acronym was added to the Oxford Dictionary. FOMO. Fear of missing out. And uh, we hate missing out, don't we? Marketing companies know this really well. Phrases like, act now, limited time offer, bundle and save, get it now, all of this to say, you don't want to miss out, buy this. For me, uh, I, I hate missing out on good food. And by good, I mean delicious, not healthy, just in case you were confused. Uh, I don't want to miss out on a, a nice meal out. Jonah was going the wrong way and missing out big time. Jonah had no FOMO at all when it came to God's plans for his life and for the lives of those that he was called to bring God's message of grace to. He did not want... God's ways in his life, and he ran. So as we engage with God's word here in Jonah, uh, my prayer is that he might increase in each one of us a great sense of FOMO, fear of missing out on his great plans in your life, his great plans of kindness and grace, both for you and for those around you who he has called you to take the message of his grace and love to. Are you going the wrong way? Is your life oriented around being God's messenger to the nations, both in Busselton and beyond? Or is it oriented around something else? Around career or family or hobbies, friends or gadgets and stuff or social life. Jonah ran by getting on a boat. We can run just by simple apathy. We go down, 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 asleep to God's plans in our lives. Are you missing out on opportunities to, to speak of Jesus in your workplace? Are you missing out on the opportunity to be transformed further by God's grace in your life when you Repent and turn from a habitual sin that you've been keeping in a compartment away from him. Are you missing out on learning new skills, serving in church life that will make a, a real difference in countless people's lives because you're too busy with other priorities? 
So the more you step into God's will and ways, you will find a a greater purpose and, and joy and delight in Him that transforms you into the person who you meant, he meant you to be. It won't be easy. It will be hard. But it will be better than you could possibly imagine. Third question. What can we learn from God's storm? Again, let's look closely at the story. This storm is doing far more than just telling Jonah off or stopping him going the wrong way. And let's, let's look closer at the, the non-Jewish, not God's people, pagan sailors and their reaction to the storm. See, they're, they're regular polytheists. That's their worldview. Awake to the fact that this storm looks supernatural. And so they're praying to every god they could possibly think of. Maybe one of them will, will, will manage to get a prayer up to and uh, will find the right one and maybe that god will, will help. And once they identify Jonah as the culprit, they, they fire questions at him, most of which he, he doesn't answer. But he does tell them this. We read it before in verse 9. I'm a Hebrew and I worship. Now that word worship is actually literally fear. See the irony? I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Jonah claims to fear God who made the sea and then runs away on the sea. And the sailors, well, look at their reaction. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. And I think we would say something similar. You just hear Jonah say this. You go, what in the world, Jonah? You done messed up and you doomed us all. Would you not say something similar? But from this point onwards, we see from them that the, the, the sailors actually fear Yahweh. They they actually do. Jonah says he does, but they actually do. And their virtue starts to shine through. Jonah tells them the solution is to kill him, and so they try hard to avoid this option. Now, that's pretty good. I mean, they've just discovered that this guy's been a bit, bit of an idiot and brought absolute disaster and tragedy on all of them. I mean, they're probably all facing bankruptcy at this point. All of, the, all, all of the supplies and what they were transporting has all been chucked overboard to just try to save their lives. If they don't die, they are probably bankrupt. And yet they still try to spare him. And even as they, at their wits' end, go to throw him into the sea, they're, they're praying, calling out to Yahweh, almost repenting, saying to God, recognizing his sovereignty over this whole thing, as they throw him in. See it in verse 14. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the last thing we hear about these sailors, the summary is to say that they converted. I mean, they, they became part of God's covenant people. That's what it looks like. Verse 15, they threw him overboard and, and then the raging sea grew calm and at this they greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows to him. That phrase, to fear the Lord, is an entirely appropriate response for God's people. We've seen that time and time again in the Old Testament. For God's people, 
to respond in that way. They, they offer a sacrifice. This is a well-established Jewish custom. Again, we see it in the Old Testament. It's possible that uh, they, they didn't actually light up a fire on the boat or have supplies of an animal at this stage to do that. Uh, it's possible they returned to Israel. They even, may have even done it down in Jerusalem. One way or another, they offer sacrifices to God. And they make vows to God, vows to the, the God who is, his, is, is on about uh, covenant making and covenant keeping. These guys are saved in more than one way. So what can we learn from the storm? This is a terrifying storm, and it is unrelenting in showing the awesome power of the Creator God. But what does he do with that awesome, terrifying power? He gives compassion and transformation. What do we learn from the storm? The Creator God uses his terrifying, unrelenting power to give compassion and transformation. The sailors, despite Jonah being the worst prophet out there, have both their physical lives and their spiritual, uh, their, their eternal lives saved as they become part of God's people. And God's not done yet with Jonah either. That, that fish was not a death sentence, which we'll see next time. There's a familiar-sounding story ringing here that, that highlights this truth for us any more personally. Have, have, have you thought of it yet already? The story begins with the Creator God stepping down into this world as a human. Can you think of a story involving a storm and a boat and being asleep and then everything suddenly going calm? Jesus calmed the storm with his disciples and that proved that he really is who he says he is, the creator God. And then at the cross, Jesus, with all the fullness of the creator God, all of his, his power as creator God, he used his power to bring his grace through death on a cross. The creator God used his terrifying, unrelenting power to give his compassion and transformation. And that flows down to us, thanks to Jesus at the cross. So if you feel like you've been going the wrong way, perhaps you've been totally ignoring God, but for whatever reason you found yourself in church this morning, or perhaps you know that there's an area of your life where you're resisting God's will and ways in. Or perhaps you know you've been failing to take God's message to to anyone. Turn to Jesus this morning. Don't run. He is unrelenting in his grace and his kindness towards you and towards me. He wants you to turn to him and allow his ways and his will to wash over every aspect of your life. He wants you to enter into his story of unrelenting grace and transformation as both a receiver and a messenger to the nations. The story of Jonah chapter 1 uses satire to expose that the tragedy of a true messenger of God 
whose unwillingness to enter into God's story of grace and transformation brings disaster upon himself and others. Maybe this story, uh, maybe you need this story to be a, a warning sign for you this morning. Wrong way, go back. But also remember that God is unrelenting in his mercy toward you too. His mercy can't be stopped. Let me pray. Thank you, God. Thank you for your unrelenting grace and mercy in our lives and countless others. May we, by your grace and transformation, delight to be your messages, with your will and your ways permeating every facet of our lives. We pray this for your honour and for your glory. Amen.